Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, the regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dobwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we'll be looking at some interesting historical figures and discussing how we might use them in Call of Cthulhu. Before we get into all that good stuff, however, Happy New Year! Oh well, yeah! In- Woohoo! Indeed, we have 2020 vision. It's the future! Yay! Yes. Well, it is the future because we're recording this in 2019. I'm sorry <laughs> to break the magic there, but... Bang on, this well, means... It- we're now in the 20s. Yes, yes, it's the 1920s already. We've come full circle. <laughs> or is it the 1920s or the 2020s? But it is the 20s, yeah. which is the Call of Cthulhu classic era. I yeah, again. But if this is the 20s, surely that means we have to wait 10 years for the rise of fascism. No, they just they do it a bit quicker. It's more efficient now. It's the future, Scott. Things yeah. happen quicker here. Not so long back, I was up in Manchester at a convention organised by Dirk the Dice, who runs the Grognard Files podcast, and it was a great little event. It was about, I mean, there was 80 to 100 people, I'd guess, uh, in a massive game shop called Fanboy 3, and I ran a game, and I played in three other games, all of which were great fun. There was some Savage Worlds, I played some 13th Age, and I played some... Mothership. Mothership, yes which was fun, and I ran a Call of Cthulhu game. I also did a, a, an interview with Dirk, which I think will be coming out this month. When we release this, may already be out. And Dirk, during the interview, he handed me a gift for the two of you. So I'm going to pass that on now. Uh-oh. Now, uh, Dirk is a great lover of zines, and this is a zine that he produced in the early 1990s, oh, in the wow. dim and distant days. God, that's, this, and that, that's my old zine days as well. Does wow. this mean courier? Uh, well, you can be the judge of the font, Matt. I'm, I'm not good on fonts. This, yes, he is the editor and publisher. I mean, it doesn't say Dirk the Dice. It uses his real name. But oh, gosh. I don't want to give that away because somebody might be listening. So there is. Uh, he handed this to me and said he's got one for Scott. It's called The Pseudonymph, an anthology of NSFA member magazines. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And he said, here's one for you, Paul. He said, here's one for your wife, Lucy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think- can sympathise with this. I, I still have boxes of the zine that I used to co-edit back in the late 80s, early 90s, in one of my cupboards, a zine called The Hardcore, which oh, right. was a, a cyberpunk fanzine. Oh, right. And I, I should probably dig out some of those and, well, and give them to Dirk in exchange for this. Yeah, I think you should, because he gave me... A copy of Hardcore. Oh, that that is the one, yes. Because <laughs> so, okay. he didn't know if you had got one or not. Yes. So uh, this is from I, Summer I'm, I'm 19... I'm not entirely sure I've got that one. Yeah. So this is from, this is the Hardcore, two pounds. This is dated Summer 95. And it's got the, oh, hang, that, the cybernetic screen. That with must a quote have been from the William last Gibson. one. Or was I actually still involved in that stage? Well, are you involved, Scott? Contributors, Scott Dorwood. Thanks to Scott Dorwood. Okay. Symbol designed by Scott Dorwood. I mean, you get three <laughs> mentions in the credits, so... Uh, Blimey. <laughs> I mean, I can only assume from that that you wrote the credits. I don't know, but... <laughs> oh, God, no, no. That would have been Jill who wrote that. Wow. So there you go. Oh. Blast from the past. Good God. And I am happy to see that in Pseudonymph, there is no sign of courier anywhere. So, yeah, already a step up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Pseudonymph looks much better laid out than the hardcore, considering I used to do the layout of the hardcore. That's <laughs> That probably explains it. Well, thank you very much, Dirk. This is uh, a real trip down memory lane. 
I'll have to pull up some uh, inspiration from that for the next album. And now on to our main topic, great NPCs of history. We thought it might be interesting to look at some real-life figures from some of the classic ages of Call of Cthulhu. Have we all gone for the 1920s here? No. Right. Okay, so that is a bit of variety for you. And look at these historical people and how we might use them in Call of Cthulhu, how they might inspire some scenarios, and what really just makes them interesting. So we've each chosen a particular person who we will present to the others. Uh, We haven't actually shared this stuff in advance and we'll try to brainstorm some stuff between us. Yeah, so we're going to try and give an overview of the person, a bit of biography of the the real life person and give you a, a picture of them and delve into their character and background and what they did. And then, as Scott said, yeah, and then brainstorm some ideas for gaming. So I'm going to take us back to the Gaslight era, 1890s. The character I've chosen bridges, as as most characters do, right, NPCs, they're going to be alive for more than one decade, one hopes. Mm. And as a starting point for this, I looked at the Radio 4 programme Great Lives because I thought that would be a good synopsis of a a person's life. It's a radio programme that comes on in the week that I sometimes catch when I'm driving around. And I do enjoy biographies, reading biographies and, and hearing them. And they've done a vast variety of different people. They have usually somebody famous to choose a person to talk about. So I went back through the catalogue and I wanted to choose somebody who wasn't just like another famous white guy. That narrowed it down quite a lot already. There's about 400 back episodes of this show and they cover all manner of people. And the person I've landed on is somebody I've never heard of, Hertha Ayrton. The elevator pitch is the woman who tamed lightning. Oh, I mean, hey. Already we've this, got yeah, ideas this, here. This sounds pulp. Yes. I, and this was before the days of Nikola Tesla, wasn't it? It's Is it not kind of concurrent? Yeah, I would have thought it was about the same time if it's the yeah. gaslight era. Yeah, and the dawn of electricity and so on. She was born in 1854 in Portsmouth, England, born Phoebe Sarah Marks, the third child of a Polish-Jewish watchmaker. Her mother was a seamstress, who, and her father died when she was just seven years old. And she went to study with some siblings. She was fortunate to be schooled. And in her teens, she adopted the name Hertha, curious to me, mm. after a Swinburne poem. Okay. Which, you know, I looked at and, yep, you know, she adopted a different name. You know, fair enough. She applied for a scholarship to Girton College, Cambridge, which was a woman's college at Cambridge and and still is Cambridge University to study mathematics. She didn't manage to get the scholarship, but she performed well enough that one of the founders of Girton College said that they would fund her studies. Now, this is a, a mark of the woman that she wasn't really happy with that, but she said she'd take it as a loan. Whilst at Girton, she led the Choral Society she built a, now I don't know if I'm going to be able to pronounce this, sphygomanometer. What do you think that does? Measures sphygomans? Measures blood pressure. Ah, So yes. maybe you were close, Scott. I really can't say. <laughs> I was thinking swigs of booze or something. But Now also, curiously, whilst there, she formed the Girton Fire Brigade. So she was a firefighter as well. In 1880, she gained a certificate, but was denied a degree. Why? Well, it can't have been on the grounds of her sex if it was a woman's college. Yes, it was. Really? really? Yeah. Cambridge apparently, from my in-depth research, apparently didn't issue degrees to women until 
1848. So they had a women's college in Cambridge where women could study at university, but for most of its existence, they couldn't actually get a degree. From what I've read, yes, that would be the case. The glass ceiling wow. dates back that far. I mean, well, I, that, I the glass ceiling dates back longer than glass. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't surprised that in her day, perhaps they didn't give degrees, but if that's correct, until 1948, that's after the Second World War. I mean, really, yeah. that's quite astounding. Other establishments gave women degrees, but not Cambridge. But in 1881, she got a Bachelor's of Science from the University of London. So after her degree, which, as I said, was in mathematics, she went into teaching and uh, running a club for working girls in London. And then she took evening classes in electricity and ended up marrying her tutor, who I guess was Mr. Ayrton. But her area of specialism and what she became known for was arc lamps. There's a thing about arc lights. In the early days, they would hiss and splutter and they were a great fire hazard. I think the hissing and, and so on caused sparking, which would lead to fires, obviously. And these lamps were, you know, used quite widely for street lighting, probably in big cities, because we think of it as the gaslight era, but electricity was around then. But these arc lights would get incredibly hot, but also be incredibly bright. And we still have arc lamps today. Mm. They're still used for some purposes. And indeed, arc welding, if you've ever seen arc welding... Uh, you'll know that if you glance at it, you get a big dot on your eyes and you can't see anything for a little while, which is why you have to use like really dark glass. I know this because I grew up on a farm and <laughs> health and safety is, of course, paramount on all farms. And it's like, yeah, don't look at that, son. What? All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I remember correctly, I think arc lamps are phenomenally bright. Yeah. I seem to remember so they, they were used in the early days of cinema, weren't they? That's oh, right. Oh, a brilliant combination of arc lamp, which is incredibly hot, with celluloid film, which is incredibly flammable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, it's like a what disaster. Yeah. <laughs> so it, no, it well, has... Not, not only flammable, explosive. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, it has two carbon rods and then passes a charge between them. I'm no scientist. Electricity is essentially magic to me. But it has two carbon rods and the oxygen uh, oxidising the carbon caused the, the sparking, as I understand it. And what she did was form better quality carbon rods and coat them in a layer of copper which reduced the sparking and made them safer yeah so there she was she'd done this with carbon rods and she would go around giving live demonstrations of arcing electricity and this flicker that they produced can you see where we're going flicker it was used in cinema the flicks oh Oh, but I thought the name came more from the fact that it was 24 still frames per second flickering past. I thought that too. So I'm not sure which is right. I suppose actually, no, it probably makes more sense from the, the lighting perspective because the whole point of having those 24 frames per second is that it's too fast for the human eye to actually see the joins. Whereas, you know, with flickering lights, yeah, that would make more sense. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah, I'd never really thought about the etymology of that. She wrote a paper, The Mechanism of the Electric Arc, for the Royal Society, which she wasn't allowed to read, but some dude called John Perry read for her instead in 1901. <laughs> but Perry put her name forward as a member, but she was turned down. Why? Let me Why guess. was she turned down as a member of the Royal Society? Let me guess. Was it the same reason that Cambridge didn't give her a degree? Not quite. Because she didn't have a degree? No. By that stage, she'd got a degree. Oh, okay. She was married. She was no longer a legal entity. Yeah, what? 
Because she was the legal possession of her husband, I think, in that oh, day and age. Oh, God, yeah. So she wasn't her own independent legal entity. And that was the excuse that the Royal Society at the time gave for not making her a member. Bizarre. Well, I mean, you say that. I remember when my parents bought their first house in Scotland in the late 1970s, my mother wasn't allowed to sign the paperwork despite the fact they supposedly owned it between them. Yeah. Because there was some stipulation in Scottish law at that stage that... You had to sign well, it with your dick? Well, no, it, it, it was that legal documents like that could only be signed, or rather could not legally be signed, by the three categories, if I remember correctly. I literally were women, children, or idiots. Right. That would count a lot of guys out as well, to be honest. <laughs> Uh, well yeah so yeah that didn't change in some respects for a long time i mean that's you know this is you know like i say the 1970s yeah so in some ways we don't live in an equal society now but you know we have moved on quite a lot when you look back and think how bad things were yeah these days we try to be more subtle with our bigotry but happily that's changing now (laughs) (laughs) yay She was awarded, however, the Hughes Medal by the Royal Society in 1906. Now, her other interest was in the waves in sand and water and ripple effect and so on. Standing waves and so on? Uh, I think like the... sympathetic vibrations? The effect of vortices in water and air and how it kind of creates those ripples on the sand and in air and so on. And in the First World War, when the trenches were getting filled with poison gas... She put this to use and invented something called the Ayrton Fan to evacuate poison gas out of the trenches. Hmm. Uh, and like over 100,000 of these were manufactured and sent to the trenches. So, you know, it was a big deal. And in, in my head, right, I pictured like massive fans, like turbine fans, right? Hmm. Kind of like rotary fans, like driving the gas out. I could see that. So I was writing these notes and I thought, you know, I'll, I'll Google that and have a look. Oh, okay. So, Google image, yes. The Ayrton fan is just basically a big bit of, like, flappy fan, like you'd fan yourself with, like a manual fan, on you the mean, end of you a mean stick. You like Matt wanders around with in, in hot climates? Yeah, like a couple of sheets <laughs> yeah. of, like, paper A4 size, sort of flat, on a stick. And there was film of people in the trenches. I don't know if it's taken at the time. I mean, there was film then. A row of guys just going along, flapping these fans up and down. <laughs> but the point being, they were in a trench, and by flapping the fan oh, yeah, up and yeah, down, yes. it created kind of circles yeah. in the air that would actually clear the gas up and out of the trench, which I suppose wouldn't necessarily be the anticipated thing that would happen. Yeah. Um, but so, obviously, the lesson we take from that is if you're caught in a poison gas attack, stand near Matt, assuming <laughs> Matt isn't the source of it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> my boss does say when we got a visitor come round to say no spitting, swearing, or farting. I say, well, Matt, well, I can manage the first two. <laughs> no exploding. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so sadly she died in 1923 of blood poisoning from an insect bite. Huh. Sad, but these things happen. She was also in- involved in the suffragette movement, accompanied Emily Pankhurst to see the Prime Minister in 1910, and was a pen pal of Marie Curie. She had 26 patents to her name. Five on mathematical dividers, 13 on arc lamps and electrodes, and the rest on the propulsion of air. So, she sounds like an absolutely fascinating person. She sounds like a a massively overlooked figure. What do you see making her interesting as a Call of Cthulhu NPC? 
I think Matt nailed it earlier on when he said that sounds like a pulp character. Mm. It does. I mean, a weird scientist, I can see, yeah, extrapolating from her. And she, she's got the ability, these arc lamps, basically the stuff between the arc lamps, the thing creating light is, I believe, plasma. You know, it's incredibly bright. It is like lightning. So if you can harness that either as a weapon or as some sort of propulsion, because she was very into propulsion of air as well. So, you know, flying devices. This, this is sounding a lot to me like she's got hold of some Yithian technology. It's mm-hmm. like, hey, I've got, a lightning Yithian, lightning, I've got a Yithian lightning gun. I know what I can make from that. Hey, I want to fly in the air like those atomic-powered cars. Hey, i got an idea for that. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, I mean, th- this is one of the things where talking about historical people in Call of Cthulhu becomes tricky because then there might be the temptation to say or she got lots of this cool technology because like you say either she met a yithian at some stage or maybe she was possessed by a yithian and you know this is where the stuff came from but there's always the problem with these fictional depictions of real people that that somehow undermines or invalidates Mm. what made them fantastic people in the first place and it's that really tricky balance in Call of Cthulhu as to how we handle that. And it's it's almost like, you know, the, the problem we had sometimes in World War Cthulhu, where we didn't want to provide mythos explanations for human atrocities. But it's the other side of that. We don't want to devalue human ingenuity by saying, oh, yeah, it's Yithians. Yeah, it's saying, oh, well, actually, she wasn't a genius. She just found these weird devices. But she was a genius. Whilst I can see the argument for the lightning gun, yeah, I I think probably, you know, to say she was a weird scientist. And, I mean, on the other hand, I suppose if she had found these devices, most people wouldn't be able to understand them. So her genius perhaps allowed her to understand them. Or replicate them. Or replicate them. Or, Or alternatively, if you wanted a way of using her in Call of Cthulhu without that devaluation. You could even have it that the Ithians are going to her in that era because she's one of the few humans who understands the technology they need. Oh, she made um, the lightning guns for them. Uh, yeah, either that or... <laughs> How about that? Either that or she can you know, provide them with the means that they need to replicate their technology in that era. Mm. I, I like the idea of them actually landing on Earth then deciding, right, we'll examine the far future. We've come across this weird scientist who has this really good idea for using lightning. <laughs> yeah. Hey, we can use that and take it back and build the lightning gun on her specification. And I suppose the other interesting aspect of her from what you've said is the sort of battles that she had to put up with there in terms of not getting that degree, in terms mm. of not being able to present at the Royal Society because of her, her status as a married woman. And I'm sure the you know, tens of thousands of other irritations and problems and barriers that she encountered because of her sex. It's again that 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 thing about how much you want to bring that into your Call of Cthulhu game. This is something that we see an awful lot come up in forums and and social media, which is the I suppose the less charitable way of putting it is you know, people saying, oh, yeah, I want to put more bigotry in my games, but uh, how do I realistically represent the challenges that a woman or a person of colour or, you know, an LGBT person might have mm. to face during this time? And how much we really want to do that. Do you think it would be fun if you were playing a character like her in a Gaslight Era game to have to put up with all that stuff because it's historically accurate? Or would you want the Keeper to hand wave it? I'd just prefer a good story that doesn't have to worry about such concerns, to be fair. 
And so you're in favour of the hand-waving? No, I just wouldn't go near the topic in the first place. It's not to hand-wave. It's ha- hand-wave. When, you, when you say you wouldn't go near the topic, what, you wouldn't have a female character? Or? No, no, not, not so much that. Thinking, you can have a story that doesn't have to touch on that issue. So I'll go for the story that's entertaining that doesn't have to worry about it. To hand-wave is to imply that you've got it in there, but then you're just brushing past it. I just wouldn't go near it in the first place. But the point is that for a woman at that time, in that era, that there probably wouldn't be a part of her life that wasn't impacted by that. That, you know, there would be all sorts of restrictions on what she could do, on who would take her seriously, on the barriers that she'd face. As a Cthulhu investigator, as someone who is trying to put these ideas of weird science forward, trying to get people to take her seriously, would you just pretend none of that happens? No, I just think it's a barrier to having a fun story and therefore wouldn't go near it because it would interfere with the fun. I think saying hand-waving and so on sounds like... um, Very dismissive. Yes, it sounds like you're kind of being weak in the face of it. No, I don't think so. No, I think hand-waving just means you you don't deal with it. Yeah, just the term sounds a bit negative okay. um, I, I, to, I, to my I've sort of more neutral. But. Right. Because I would, I would say in a pulp game, I would be with Matt and I'd mm. sort of say, you know, well, if some guy sort of says, oh, you're not allowed in here, I mean, she'd just punch him in the face, right, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. It's pulp. Yeah. Uh, or she'd, you know, zap him with some electricity <laughs> and it go go past while he's kind of uh, been tasered. But in NPC, you probably get batted in the face by me anyway. But in a in a more gritty kind of straight Call of Cthulhu game, then yeah, I can see those issues kind of coming into play. But if they're quite, hmm, they wouldn't be powerful pop characters in that case. But but yeah, I think you know we've talked about reality and how you deal with it in in previous shows, and I think this is a uh, an important topic when it comes to these kind of characters. Yeah, and I think the conclusion we came to last time, which I'd support here, is leave it down to the player. Mm. I mean, you know, if someone's playing a character like that, if they want to explore the barriers that their character might hit in that situation, then, you know, you as a keeper might want to put a few of those in. If they say, you know, I put up with enough of this shit in daily life, I just want to play my character, then you do that. Yeah, yeah, and similarly from my, from my angle as a keeper, it's not an issue I want to explore, so I wouldn't go near it in-game. Do you think that because of the scientific aspect of it, she's automatically a pulp character? We see a lot of weird science in Lovecraft. I'm going to delve into some weird science in a bit as well. Now, obviously, that really suits Pop Cthulhu because it's got rules for weird science. But you know, when you think of characters like Herbert West and Crawford Tillinghast, they're not necessarily pulp characters. No, I think, well, I mean, we have to recognise that some of Lovecraft would be towards the pulp end of things, like Herbert West, and I'd say you could certainly treat Crawford Tillinghast as pulp. So it's always a sliding scale. No, I don't think she has to be a pulp character, but I think she lends herself strongly towards that. And I certainly think Crawford Tillinghast, with her, her ability to you know do things with electricity and air, one can imagine her building a device not dissimilar to the Tillinghast resonator to be able to see into other dimensions that would be another direction you could go so in a regular Call of Cthulhu game I think that would be a a good good direction to take that in yeah and you've spoken very much about her being sort of a protagonist you know you're almost more of a player character than an NPC and if you were using her as an NPC when we see weird science in Call of Cthulhu and Lovecraft and Pop Cthulhu, the weird scientists are generally antagonists if they're NPCs. Would you consider having an antagonist like her? If so, you know, how would that work? Or would she automatically somehow be there to aid the player characters? And the easy antagonist is option is to go with the Ithian agent one, my two cents. I could see her perhaps not being an active antagonist, but 
almost like a passive one. So mm. a bit like Tillinghast, she's built this thing to help humanity, but actually there's an unfortunate side effect that is letting through mythos entities or you know having a, a negative impact. That wasn't her aim. So I wouldn't take a figure like her because I think she's a, a historical figure. I wouldn't want to cast her in a, as a negative force, but I would be content with casting her in that light that she's inadvertently opened a door to something bad. And then perhaps yeah. she would be an NPC that perhaps at first fights against the characters because she thinks they're trying to destroy her work. But perhaps once she's brought round to their side, potentially, she might end up helping them. I mean, the other way you could potentially use a character like that, I suppose, is to have them you know, make some kind of a discovery to see what someone else or something else is up to, and perhaps not put all the pieces together themselves, but come up with enough sort of processed clues, interpreted clues that the investigators or heroes could pick up on and then run with. Mm. I've similarly chosen someone who might not be that well-known, or at least not by their name, and also someone who was involved with the sciences, though I think mine is much more easily perceived these days as a mad scientist. And this is a physician, uh, I suppose physician, medical experimenter, researcher, by the name of Sergei Voronov. And I must thank Steve Ellis, our good friend, for suggesting this. Voronov and his work has been on my radar for a while. I've, I've had the idea to perhaps do a scenario involving him for a while. But Steve did pop up on social media recently and remind me of Voronov's existence. And this is what prompted me to talk about him this time. So what will probably immediately bring Voronov's work to mind for the people who don't recognise his name is the magic phrase, monkey glands. Voronov was the monkey gland doctor. You just wanted to bring him up so you could do a blood monkey impression. <laughs> it used to be a big thing, the monkey glands, in popular culture. Yeah. I, I think it's kind of got out of fashion now. Not that it was ever really in fashion, but it used to be... A, oh, no, it really was in fashion. It used we'll to be to a that. thing people yeah. referenced quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it seems to have died out. And we'll, we'll perhaps get into some of that and why that... Yeah, because if that were happening now, it'd be all over the internet. There'd be loads of memes about monkey glands. And oh, so yeah. On. I mean, there probably are some, but it's not like prominent. And there were the equivalent at the time mm. as well. But Voronov was, he was a Russian doctor who moved at a fairly young age to France and did most of his work there, lived most of his life there, and really worked between France and Northern Africa, Algeria. And his interest was primarily in the field of what is wonderfully known as xenotransplantation which is the transplantation of organs and uh, other matter between species. And what date are we talking about, Scott? So he was born in 1866, and most of his work was done between... I mean, he did the early stages of it in the 1910s, but when he became a public figure and you know, his work was, was famous throughout the world, was in the 1920s and to a lesser extent the 1930s. So perfect, like, Call of Cthulhu, Paul yeah. Cthulhu time. He had actually started in the gaslight period, though. Yeah, he started out in 1889 when he worked with a, a French experimental physiologist whose name I will undoubtedly mangle, uh, Charles-Edouard Brown-Sequoir, who had a similar idea as, you know, he pretty much planted the ideas, I think, in Voronov's head and set his career on its path. Because what... <laughs> 
Oh, God, I'm going to have to say his fucking name again, aren't I? What uh, Brown Sakar was interested in was reversing ageing. And he attempted to do this by injecting himself with the ground-up testicles of dogs and guinea pigs. As you do. If that's not going to work, what is? Yeah, it didn't work. (laughs) It didn't work? No. Oh, my God. But obviously this stuck with Voronov. And later on, he worked in Egypt for a while. And he became very interested in eunuchs there. And the effects that castration would have on a person. Because he he realised that, as well as the other physiological changes that... uh, that castration brought about that eunuchs tended to die younger and be less fit oh. and and age quicker oh, right. and so he figured that this was all related and this led him to start experimenting with transplanting what was known as interstitial tissue between entities which basically was little thin slices of carved up testicles and at various stages, he did this initially with, with animals. So he, for example, a big part of his work was trying to produce really healthy, long-lived livestock. And he did this alongside all his human work right through the 1920s. And yeah, even to the extent where the French government sponsored his work, because they considered it to be the, the future of agriculture. And Which bit was the future of agriculture? Transplanting bits of testicles from younger animals into older ones to try to make them more long-lived and virile. Right. Uh, so he, for example, managed to extend the lifespan, apparently, of a prize ram by putting bits of, I think it was goat testicle, in its scrotum. Right. So, he, yeah, he did a lot of this work at the same time as he was starting similar work on humans and he did his first human transplantation actually in the 1910s around i've seen different figures of 1913 and 1915 there was a young man um, well a child i think a teenager who had a thyroid deficiency and one of the effects of, of thyroid problems in children can be uh, delayed intellectual development and so what he did was he took the thyroid gland of a chimpanzee because he figured at this stage, this was the start of his work with apes. He figured that because apes were biologically closer to human beings, they'd be much better subjects for transplantation. So he took the thyroid from a, a chimpanzee and grafted it into this, this young boy and apparently actually cured him that within a few years, the boy was at school and learning normally. Okay. This is something we'll come back to. As bizarre and as weird as his ideas were, they did actually seem to work. Right. This was in the infancy of the the whole idea of transplantation in general. There had been transplants, even xenotransplants, going on since, well, potentially actually since ancient Greek times and perhaps ancient Egyptian times, but more readily documented since the 17th century when people would, for example, graft bits of dog bones in to repair injuries in people. So it's not a new thing. But he was one of the first people to do it with organs. I mean, there, there had been something in the, the 19th century, I think, where someone had been given a pig's kidney to try to cure kidney failure and had died within about an hour afterwards. So mm. you know, it didn't really work. But yeah, Voronov did make this stuff work. And so he went on from there to trying to cure the problems that he saw as being related to lack of virility. Going back to you know, what he saw with the eunuchs and you know, what castration had done to them, he surmised that 
inserting bits of interstitial tissue, bits of severed testicle, into the scrotums of people would make them more virile. And not not just more virile, but extend the human lifespan, reverse aging. Right. And he started out, I think, you know, using the severed testicles of executed human prisoners and doing transplants between people. But this wasn't sustainable because and there just weren't nothing, enough balls around. And clearly nothing bad is going to come of that. Yeah. Well, in, in fiction terms. Well, I mean, it wasn't just in fiction. There were concerns at the time. There was actual research done into whether the criminal traits of the people who were being executed might be passed along with the bits of the testicles. Right. I, I, keep, I keep thinking of that film, The Eye, where comes off uh, the eye is transplanted out as a dead person and, of course, the new person sees images leading up to the murder mm. of the previous one. I hate to think what Clyde Barker <laughs> shit would go down with a, a transplanted dick. That's yes, horrible. I did commit these murders, my lord, but in my defence, I have a murderer's testicles <laughs> grafted onto me. What? Dick made me do it! Well, I, there were horror films around that time it sounds like a horror yeah, film that, that, that were being made about transplantation and murderous traits going across i mean uh, hands of all off and mad love this was an idea in the fiction at the time and i don't know whether that came out of the concerns relating to voronov i think we know where the body politic story came from now <laughs> oh god can you imagine if your scrotum turned against you <laughs> no i don't want to <laughs> But yeah, he went on and developed from there and basically created this industry uh, <laughs> to the extent where he actually, he bought an old castle. and Of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> in true mad scientist fashion in France. And he had his own ape farm there where he bred apes especially for this purpose and he would have you know, patients go off to the secluded castle on the coast of france and yeah experiment upon them so he goes to the like the real estate agent and he's like i need somewhere to do my work and they're like oh yeah we can like you know find a like, up-to-date like medical facility no i want an old castle yeah, pretty I'm much. See, I'm seeing how you could link these two uh, these two NPCs together. Now you've got one with the castle, the other one dealing with electricity, bringing dead apes back to life. Yeah, <laughs> or, or at least parts of dead apes. <laughs> oh, yeah, something got up. Oh, boy. I'm now thinking of that bit in what was it, the third reanimator film, where Herbert West reanimates just a severed penis and it ends up fighting a rat. Oh yes, oh, I had forgotten that. Oh, yeah, we tried well, to forget. It's, it's never far from my mind. Yeah, over the course of the next you know, 20 years or so, he did, I, I think it was something like four or 5,000 transplantations like this because it did actually work. There didn't seem to be negative side effects and it would actually restore some degree of... It wasn't just sexual potency. Sexual potency was part of it. I mean, people would go to him for impotence treatments, but they would also do it to combat the effects of ageing, to you know, combat muscle loss and you know, lack of vigour and all the things that happen when you basically reach the male menopause. Well, let me pin this down. You said this actually worked. What actually worked exactly? So what it seems to be is that the testosterone that was in these glands did actually... The monkey testicles. Yes. Right. Did actually seep into the transplant patients. Now, what's really interesting about this is this all happened before the isolation, the discovery of testosterone. Right. That only happened in 1935. So he was ahead of the curve here. And yes, the people he helped did at least show positive benefits for generally about two or three years. 
he did get sort of carried away with some of his ideas when he thought that he might actually start doing this with children at some stage and create a new race of supermen. He thought that if it were done properly, he might be able to extend the human lifespan to 140. At some stage, he started doing this with women as well. I'm, I'm still not entirely sure how that worked. But he would. <laughs> a little from column A, a little from column B. <laughs> yeah. I like why you're still not entirely sure how that worked. But you are sure about how the other stuff worked. I just, I just, uh, no, I'm, I'm, just I'm not entirely that... sure what he did. Right, okay, okay. I, I, no, I, I get you. I'm, I'm just imagining people driving along in their cars listening to this episode. And there'll be some people who are thinking, where can I get these monkey glands? <laughs> how do I insert them exactly? And there'll be other people in brackets, medically qualified people, like, just face-palming so badly <laughs> that our show is, like, saying this stuff worked and it was, like, good stuff. Well, I'm not saying it was good stuff, but... Okay, uh, I think you should emphasise that. Because he did all sorts of really kind of weird stuff afterwards. With the female patients, he didn't just insert... <laughs> afterwards? <laughs> oh, yeah, I haven't got to the best part yet. Okay. I mean, as well as inserting bits of, of testicles into female patients, he would also put bits of ovarian tissue as well in there. Mm. And I'm not sure whether that had any effect. But, you know, he was just trying shit out. So, mm. But most of his successes were with male patients. Yeah, they, this did make him successful right until the 1940s, when the tides started turning against him and people started seeing this as being very much quackery particularly once the science about testosterone started becoming better known. Though, ironically, the, you know, the science around testosterone actually explained a lot of what this was. But anyway, where things get really fucking weird is he started collaborating at some stage. He was approached by a Soviet scientist. Oh, I mean, it'd have to be either the Soviets or the Nazis or something, because <laughs> we're getting to the end of the, the 1930s now, right? Yeah. The, uh, <clears throat> and this... he's in France, so... Yeah, I can't remember exactly when this was. Uh, I think it might have been in the, the other 30s or the 40s. But he was approached by a Soviet scientist by the name of Ilya Ivanov, who he probably deserves his own episode because he was even more fucked up than Voronov. He just wasn't as famous. What Ivanov did was he tried to break down the barriers between ape and man. He was very interested in sort of swapping bits of the reproductive cycle between apes and people and creating hybrids. And so what he did with Voronov, for example, was they got a female chimpanzee by the name of Nora, who they, well, they named Nora. I don't think she called herself that. Right. No. And they implanted human ovaries into her. Uh -huh. and inseminated her with human sperm to see whether they Wait could make a, a minute, bear, a what? human baby. Monkey loving. Okay. <laughs> yes. God. Trust you the, to find the most fun This is all person. in the name of science, I <laughs> tell you. Well, even, of, yeah, even after this. Nora likes to, it. <laughs> <laughs> even, of, even after this, when he went back to the Soviet Union, he went the other way around and he was going around implanting ape ovaries into, um, into Soviet women, trying to get them to bear half-ape babies. This is obviously the fine line between science and fetishism, I guess. I mean... This is this is marvelous, Scott. I, I... <laughs> That's not the word I would use. <laughs> <laughs> just, as a as an NPC, I mean, I I found somebody who could be like, you know, you could stretch it to like weird science. You found somebody weirder than anything I could even make up. Yeah, but the thing. 
thing is, he was genuinely famous in his time because he worked with the rich and powerful across Europe and, and even in the US and, and treated so many wealthy men that his work was in the newspapers at the time. I mean, he was... I, I don't know about a household name in the 1920s and 30s, but certainly the procedure, the monkey gland procedure was, he, he wasn't the only person who did that. I mean, there was a, another doctor he worked with sometimes, a rival of his. See, now they've done the rivalry between Tesla and Edison. They should do the, <laughs> they should do the monkey gland rivalry. Yeah, yeah. Yes, sorry, there was a rival of his whose name I've completely forgotten and can't find in my notes, but it doesn't matter, who basically continued the idea of trying to do it through injections. And again, that didn't really work as well. It was the transplantation that seemed to work. It'd have to be a really big needle if you were trying to inject a monkey testicle <laughs> into someone. But then, yeah, by the 1940s, he was a figure of ridicule and people just dismissed his work as a quack. What's happened is since the 1990s and you know in the modern day, there's been something of a re-evaluation of his work. Not necessarily that this is the right way to do it, but the fact that he was ahead of his time in terms of the effect of testosterone upon aging. And nowadays, I think this is more of a thing in the US that, you know, much as menopausal women are given HRT to help with the effects of menopause, there are more and more men going through the male menopause, which is that period when the testosterone production in the body really drops, and you start noticing physical effects of aging as a result, who are now being prescribed testosterone tablets or testosterone drops to try to counteract that. And it's having much the same effect as Voronov's monkey gland treatment. Huh. So if the doctor does prescribe you those tablets, if they're like really big tablets, <laughs> yeah, I'd probably say no. I can't swallow that. Yeah. You're not meant to, sir. Do not take orally. Oh, yeah. Well, I remember seeing some news segment on them a while back where there is actually a problem with some of these testosterone treatments that are being prescribed. I may get some of the details of it wrong here, but I, I seem to remember it's, it's given as droplets, and you have to be very careful with the disposal of them because if they start getting into the water supply... Then, you know, much as you get with uh, some, yeah, some yeah. of the, the artificial estrogens that are in there, then it starts having all sorts of really hideous effects on the wildlife. But more than that, there's a risk of contamination within the household that you don't want any cross-contamination. You don't want it getting into other people's uh, medicines or food or anything like that. You have to be really, really careful about, you know, not getting it on your skin, about disposal, about, you know, where it gets to, because it is... It has such an effect. Well, I can't really see you could do anything with this guy in a game, Scott. I mean, <laughs> how, how could you even use this? I, I, I've got the one that's just been stuck in my mind for a while now. That age-old problem where you've got an investigator that goes into a ghoul roll, mm. uh, warren, frantically come, uh, so meets the ghouls, frantically tries to scrabble their way out of there and gets their balls ripped off in the process. Well, now they've got a future. <laughs> they've got someone that can help them, finally. Does, does that happen a lot in your games, Matt? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love the idea that a delicacy amongst ghouls is investigator bollocks. <laughs> like meatballs. <laughs> Only in Matt's games. <laughs> Particularly more marinated. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I've got this really good jerky. <laughs> so, yeah, I, what could we do with him? I guess... One thing that we'd have to consider is, I mean, obviously he is a pulp character. I mean, you could perhaps do something with him in a normal Call of Cthulhu game, but I think he really lends himself to pulp. But I guess the first question you have to ask yourself is, do you play him for laughs or do you play him for horror? Because 
He is right on that line there. Depending on how you approach the subject matter, it could be either, you know, really wacky, fucked up comedy, or it could be really nasty body horror. Yeah, I'm going with the latter. (laughs) Yeah, I I totally think, you know, as with most horror themes, you can ramp it up and make it funny, Hmm. or you can make it really gritty and horrible. And I think that's the case with most things. The obvious thing with this guy to me, you know, if we're thinking of pulp, he's he's got this half human, half monkey army, and uh, <laughs> you know he's in a French castle, and he's experimenting on people. So that that lends itself to pulp. But again, there could be, as you say, some really unpleasant body horror things that he's done to people, and that whole French castle thing doesn't have to be pulp at all. That can be very gritty, traditional Call of Cthulhu. Uh, scenario there i think by the way i've just realized looking at my notes the castle wasn't in france it was in italy it was in grimaldi he bought it in 1925 and yes he he apparently built a primate enclosure in the garden and hired a former circus manager to manage it well grimaldi was the clown right grimaldi was a famous clown pretty sure about that i mean i don't know if it relates directly to the name but it's also a place in italy right yeah but i mean just linking it with clowns suddenly adds a whole an un- undesired dimension to it. Thinking of blinking, I was trying to remember when um, Wizard of Oz was written, because thinking monkeys, well, if you try to oh. transplant other things onto their backs, and <laughs> then you got you suddenly got your flying winged monkeys that you could take into Wizard of Oz, if uh, yeah. L. Frank Baum was around at the time. One of the things you could really play with in this, even if you didn't use Voronov or anyone like him as a character, is the fact that, you know, this is blatant mad science, certainly by our perspective and you know, really by the perspective of the time, that was generally accepted, not policed, was part of the popular culture, was in the news at the time, and people just accepted it as part of everyday life. One thing I sometimes struggle with in games is when you get something really weird happening, how do you handle it becoming public? You know, how do you handle you know, the mm. idea of people making discoveries about the mythos getting into the news? Does that fundamentally change human society? Is it something that should be suppressed? Do you try to do the X-Files thing of destroy all the evidence and make sure none of this gets into the press? No, no. For like 20 years, this was just in the newspapers and everyone fucking accepted it. Just claim it's monkey balls and no one cares. I mean, there was nothing <clears throat> otherworldly about what he was doing. Yeah, I think he was trying to work within a scientific framework, right? He was using actual animals and actual people and experimenting between them. It wasn't like he was using alien technology or mythos monsters or something like that. So this was all under the the framework of veterinary science or human science, just trying to blend the two, medical science. But but, but on the other hand, I mean, you you think of a character like Herbert West... Mm. And Herbert West isn't dealing with alien monstrosities or trying to break down human reality or anything like that. He is raising the dead generally pretty unsuccessfully, but he's experimenting on human corpses, bringing them back. And this is all seen as being very secret and hidden and, you know, we can't let the authorities know. Yeah, if Voronoff teaches us anything, Herbert West could have become, you know, the, the toast of the town, he could have become part of high society. He could have had rich sponsors. It could have been, okay, I'll give you my body after death if you'll try to bring me back. And But this guy yeah. had more success than West. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he did. I mean, West had limited success. But Voronov had limited success. I mean, his treatments lasted for a few years. I mean, with West, I mean, if he pitched it as the idea of... It's a work in progress. It may not work, you know, for this test subject I've got here. But by the time you die, it'll probably be perfected. Yeah. 
With Voronov, he's experimenting with creating cures for diseases. And in real life, we have cures for diseases. He's just using a uh, an alternative means, which, you know, he can argue is scientific. With Herbert West, he's bringing back the dead. So that's something that nobody else can do. It's in another realm. And oh. I, I can accept, though, if he was... So that that seems to set that apart to me. But also... No, I don't think so. Because one yeah, one thing Voronov was saying you know, later in his career was this, once it's perfected, will help me extend the human lifespan. It'll help provide a cure for death. Ultimately, in the end, what he was trying to do was find a way to make humans immortal. That's his ultimate goal. But Herbert yeah. West's immediate goal that he was doing was bringing back the dead. That seems... Bigger headlines to me, you know, like, well, mm, that's like oh, aliens yeah. landing yeah. or, you know, proof of God or something like that. That's like pretty amazing stuff. Whereas curing somebody's thyroid gland problem to the average Joe is like, oh, the doctors have cured somebody. I don't know. So, but yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I, I take a point of scale. Well, that's my question. Is it even on the same scale? Well, I, th- I think if someone were claiming in the press that they'd be able to cure aging, be able to provide immortality for people, that would be a huge, huge deal. But I think with Herbert West, a character like Herbert West, if you're taking him and he actually did bring people back from the dead. Mm. Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, maybe. And, uh, but I think, you know, if, if that was actually scientifically recognised, then I guess we would take that on board. You know, it'd be a, a game change for humanity. Because what the hell would that mean? That's, yeah. You know, but if it becomes scientifically proven, then again, it's just like aliens landing. It seems like science fiction, but let's say it happened. It's reported, as we've seen in some films, after a few weeks, people are like, oh, well, unless aliens I mean, landed. I mean, the thing about Herbert West, though, is ultimately what he was doing didn't work that well. He would bring people back, but they come back wrong. They'd be mindless. They'd be monstrous. And it never quite had the effect he wanted. So it's almost possible to see a career arc like Voronov's, where, you know, initially he's celebrated, he's toasted, he's funded. But, you know, as people start having more and more doubts about whether or not he's ever actually going to achieve what he's promised, whether he is actually going to cure death or whether he's just providing this brief return as a mindless monster, then, you know, after a little while, maybe the funding dries up, maybe people just start mocking him. And, you know, like Voronov, by the time he dies as an old man, you know, he's just either a laughingstock or forgotten. And also it takes a while to prove immortality. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm immortal. <laughs> well so far yeah or will be or die trying <laughs> but what if he'd taken like mythos monster yeah. tissue and grafted that into humans you know like you matt you mentioned ghouls already matt what if he'd got some ghoul well maybe ghoul testicles okay it would have to be boring <laughs> off clearly it's going to be testicles right yeah uh, he not was all, all myth- about the bollocks and not all mythos monsters i'm assuming have testicles but let's say he's taking tissue from them whether it be brain tissue or reproductive tissue mm. or something and putting and grafting that into humans i mean there's all manner of stuff that can come from that oh i mean there, w- there was a scenario i wrote a while back which you know before i'd i'd really looked into voronov which did something similar with the idea of uh, xenografting from deep ones into humans. The idea that it was a military scientist trying to do this to produce amphibian humans to use in the war effort. Right. I, I, I wonder what would happen if you're thinking of apes. What would the bollocks of a dimensional shambler do? <laughs> <laughs> D- disappear when you need them the most. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Deep ones are obvious one because they interbreed with humans anyway, yeah. right? 
I mean, the thing is that what Voronov seemed to suggest here, or seemed to prove even, is that there doesn't need to be that biological compatibility for the xenotransplantation mm. to work. You know, I think we've seen this much more in the modern day with uh, transplantation of of hearts and kidneys and other organs. Yeah, heart from animals. Yeah, so from yeah. yeah, from pigs and apes and yeah. 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 Transplant a bit of shogoth. It could be whatever bit of the body you want it to be. Well, I mean, mm. you you see a lot of work into um, stem cells these days to do exactly that. The you know sort of a, a a universal cell that will turn into whatever you want. I mean, is that like the protoplasmic matter from which shogoths are made? Mm. That could explain why I had a talking knee in one game. It was a bit <laughs> of shogoth and the mouse with the human ear. I remember seeing pictures of that. Yeah. But you were talking about the idea of what happens if a, an investigator gets his testicles ripped off. But Mythos investigators suffer all sorts of horrible wounds, diseases. Their bodies are changed, altered, mutilated at the hands of Mythos forces. If you fell into the treatment of a doctor like Voronov, but who had access to Mythos resources, who might be able to try to cure you of some of those things, I mean, would the cure end up making you worse than what you went in with? Yes. <laughs> you, you, you say worse, I just say different. Yeah, more interesting. Yeah. Yes. Especially if it suddenly starts yelling tickly every so often. I can't help thinking of uh, William S. Burroughs' Dr. Benway here oh, yes. as well. Two more little things I was going to throw in. Two okay. more little things? <laughs> Funnily enough, an appropriate number. Which is talking about the effect of monkey glands on popular culture. So there is to this day apparently a monkey gland sauce, which is a delicacy in South Africa, and you see oh in some God. South African restaurants. It's got to be a hot sauce. Apparently it is made from chopped onion, garlic, ginger, chutney, soy sauce, mustard, uh, Worcester sauce, ketchup and wine. And testicles. Yeah, <laughs> well, you missed out an ingredient. There, yeah. No, no. Apparently, apparently, there are no monkey testicles in there. It was just given that name because it was created at the height of Voronov's fame, and they thought, "Oh, that's a good name," and it's still in use to this day. Apparently, you can still find it in South African restaurants. It's a a, a, a sanitised version. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to go looking for that in Waitrose. I'm pretty sure they love monkey testicles. <laughs> but far more importantly, for Matt's interests, there is also a monkey gland cocktail. Hey, hey. It has a floater in it. Uh, yeah, that, that's that's not an olive. <laughs> it's not an olive. It's not a lump of ice. <laughs> do, do you want to just read out the ingredients there and tell oh, us yes. how you might go about making that? Here we go. It is half and half gin and orange juice. That's already a good combination. I can get behind that. Mm-hmm. A dash of absinthe. Way hey. And a dash of raspberry or other sweet juice. Mix well with ice and serve only with a doctor handy. The doctor <laughs> is indeed mandatory but apparently if you don't have access to the raspberry juice you can use grenadine instead mm-hmm. and when absinthe was illegal in a lot of places they substituted pastis instead oh. so try that one at home and see if it puts hair on your chest or Somewhere. everywhere else <laughs> yeah, just in one particular place well this will be the point where as we normally keep to format that i'd be presenting an npc yeah it's nowhere near as interesting as monkey balls <laughs> uh, and Frankly, I think, yeah, that, that's enough for the, between those two to, to have filled an episode. If you filled something, my, my head is full of some very, very horrible images right now. Uh, so I think we will revisit this format probably quite soon so we can get Matt's one in there and, yeah, possibly see who else we can find from the history books. Trust me, mine ain't anywhere near as fucking interesting as monkey balls. <laughs> so, listeners, if you have suggestions for interesting figures from history, particularly that hit the kind of Gaslight or 1920s era that 
even come close to Scott's Dr. Voronoff, then do let us know because I think I didn't know either of these people, either Ayrton or Voronoff, before this week. So, yeah, please let us know interesting characters that you know about. Shall we wrap this up then by talking a little bit about how we personally approach using historical characters in games? For a start, how much do you two actually tend to use historical figures as NPCs in your games? Very rarely. Yeah, very rarely. Why is that? Mainly because I prefer making my own shit up. It mainly only happens when I find an NPC that I go, wow, that really fits with what I want to write. And, And that rarely happens. It's so unusual to find someone that has a life like monkey ball man (laughs) that can so easily be fit into a mythos story or in one case i can think of it was someone that had done that had got involved in a certain subject matter that was really kind of at the heart of a story i wanted to tell so it was a natural fit and the other one i can think of was that they happened to be doing something at exactly the same time when i was setting a story around a historical event so it made sense to include him as well So in one scenario, I did use King George, but I mean, it was because of the direction that the particular campaign was taking. It was kind of escalating to higher figures in society. Uh, I guess I referenced perhaps Tolkien in one. But for example, you rewrote the Kenya chapter Mm. of Masks from the Alathdep, and that does use a key figure from Kenyan history. Were you... At all wary about presenting that character? What were your concerns in doing yeah, so? Yeah, I think it's difficult if you're representing any political figure because people are going to have different opinions of their place in history and you don't really want to take a partisan view of that character. So I tried to present them in a relatively neutral light and just try to stick to the facts to some degree, I think, and let people bring their own interpretation to it. And I suppose there's always the danger when you're using a major historical figure like that, certainly in the case of Kenya, and that's someone who you're using in the campaign before they became a major historical figure. They're just this ordinary guy at this stage, Mm. or relatively ordinary. And there's, I suppose, the question of what's it going to do to the player's suspension of disbelief if that character dies or if their life is changed in some drastic way by what happens in the campaign. One complaint I saw of the campaign you mentioned in the first place was the fact that because it was the King of England who was at the heart of it and there was the possibility for really horrific things to happen involving him, that there were some people who quite bizarrely, I think, objected to the fact that you can't do this, this would change history. I, I like the idea of the more horrific question being, yeah, so the king died in this in the, this chapter of this campaign. One forward a few years, who the hell is that sitting on the throne? Mm. But also, often with these big campaigns, they can almost be world-ending things. Yes. So the fact that a future prime minister died or a king died, that reshapes future events. But... You know, so does like Nalathotep turning up Mm. and like destroying the world. I think if you're playing a historical game, you've got to accept the fact that you're creating an alternate history. Yeah, totally. If I choose so, my investigator, even though it's not related to the game, I could go and attempt to assassinate the Prime Minister, let's say, in the 1920s. Well, unless the Keeper is going to absolutely stop me, then surely there's a chance I could do that. Yeah, as for me, I mean, there are a few times where I've looked at a historical character and thought, 
I want to base a scenario around them, or they, you know, they'd provide a really good hook into something else I've got in mind. So, for example, Louis Wayne. He's a, an artist from the 19th and early 20th century who I was fascinated by. He basically popularised anthropomorphic art. He was interested in cats. He popularised cats as pets in the UK, as respectable pets. And he was a household name in his time, and then he went spectacularly insane. There are all sorts of theories about why. And I just, you know, with all those elements, I thought, yeah, that's a Call of Cthulhu scenario waiting to happen. And so, yeah, I I wrote Catland around him. I realised at the time I probably could have used an analogue for him, but what would be the point of doing that? Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Well, once again, we have people to thank. We have a lot of people to thank. We have obviously just put out the latest issue of The Blasphemous Tome, and a lot of you jumped in at the last minute to back that, and we would like to say thank you to each and every one of you who did that. Well, thank you to everyone who was backing us anyway. Thank you to everyone who listens to the podcast. But we have a bunch of new people to thank by name. All right, first up on our list is thanks going out to, I hope I'm getting pronouncing this right, uh, Jonathan Derrick. So thank you very much, Jonathan. Yeah, we should say that we may well mispronounce some of your names. Many apologies if we do. Especially when it gets around to me. I am terrible at pronunciation. And thanks to Lachlan Bennett. Thank you very much to Gear Martin Strand. And also thanks to, again, this is me being terrible at pronunciation. And thanks to Gunter Agrius. And thank you to Jennifer Finch. Aha, uh-huh. and a, a familiar name from our Discord server. Thank you to Dave the Kraken. Hey, gotta love a good tentacle. And thanks out go out to Bjorn Oren. And thanks to Tim Collins. And thank you very much to Dustin Doris. And thanks to Martin Cookson. And thank you to James Lundberg. Thank you very much to Dylan Brashier. And thanks to Rob McCulloch. And thanks to Ed Kiernan. Thank you very much, James Puckett. And a great name to finish off with today. And our thanks go out to Shogun's Pumba. All right, well, that wraps it up for today. So it's a uh, good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemoustones.com. Mm-hmm.